Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today on the show, we've got Blister reviewer and my good friend, Paul Forward, back on the show to talk about some things that Paul and I have been discussing for years. And since we've been talking quite a bit recently about various topics related to food and food systems, I thought it would be fitting for Paul and me to let you in on some of the topics of those behind the scenes conversations that we've been having for quite a while now. And in case you missed some of those food-related conversations on our podcasts, we will include a list of those in the show notes to this episode. But just to refresh your memory, they include discussions about the dairy industry, which we had with the Olympian Dotsie Bausch. We talked about food sovereignty and indigenous rights with Sanjay Rawal. And I would encourage all of you to go see the film that Sanjay made called Gather, if you haven't seen Gather already. We also talked this summer about pollination and bees on two different episodes, actually. And then on our Off the Couch podcast, we talked about food with Jenny and Scott Jurek. And I am still quietly hoping that there is a knock on my door one day soon and that it is Scott and that he has decided to take me up on my offer to crash at my house where he can then cook amazing meals and I promise not to hassle him about all of his elaborate meal preparation. Scott, my offer still stands. And to all the rest of you, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should definitely go listen to that off the couch episode with Scott and Jenny Jurek. Anyway, many of you know our guest today from previous podcasts that we've done over the years, as well as from his reviews on Blister. Paul Forward is a lead heli guide for Chugach Powder Guides in Girdwood, Alaska. He is a doctor who practices medicine in the small town of Kotzebue in the Arctic Circle. He is a passionate kayaker and big mountain skier and mountain biker and bow hunter. And maybe best of all, he is someone who our managing editor, Lou Kappa, still doesn't totally believe actually exists because, according to Luke, Paul just sounds like a made-up fictional character. But I promise, Luke, Paul is in fact real, and he and I talked a couple days ago where he filled me in on his most recent hunt, and we also then talk about the hunting community versus the skiing community or the mountain biking community, and what these different groups might stand to learn from one another when it comes to issues like climate advocacy and conservation. And so, yeah, Paul and I broach a lot of different topics here in this conversation. And mostly what our hope is, is that this ends up spurring some new ideas or perhaps broadening your own perspective a little bit, regardless of where you happen to sit currently on some of these different issues. Because I think the reality is we all need to continue to think and evolve and fine tune and sharpen and broaden our perspective on a lot of these important and interrelated topics. And so with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Paul Forward. Well, Paul Forward, it is good to have you back on the podcast. When's the last time we did this? 
I think it was in the spring and it involved discussions of telemark skiing. <laughs> that's right. Oh, right. That's still an upcoming thing we have to do. Well, that would that's not a big deal for you. It's a bigger deal for me. <laughs> yeah, you kind of got a pass on that with this COVID thing. So maybe that's one tiny silver lining. You didn't have to telemark this spring. <laughs> I know. This you're right. COVID is uh has has stalled our, our conversion to telemark. We'll be getting there soon enough, I think. Well, this is another instance where you and I kind of have these, you know, ongoing conversations. And I mean, some of the topics we're going to be talking about today, this has kind of been going on for some years now. And I think we've maybe touched on this a little bit in one of our past podcast conversations, but we're going to kind of foreground this a little bit more today and basically talk about some issues around food and hunting and some of the then other issues related to that. But maybe the best way to get started with this right now is that you kind of have, I guess we would call this your sort of annual tradition. And anyway, tell us what you've kind of just been up to. I, oh yeah, I will. Um, I think it's more of a lifelong obsession okay. than annual tradition. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's as much a part of my life. What I do is, is skiing and whitewater kayaking and other things in my life, but um, I, I grew up in a hunting family, and uh, still something that I make time for every year. It's quite a bit of time most years, and I just got back from uh, kind of two consecutive hunting trips. One was a, a solo backpack doll sheep hunt in a remote part of Alaska, uh, where I was just out from. I went out with. Fourteen days of food in my pack, and ended up coming back uh, early because I had a sheep, and I do all that with with a, a longbow, a fiberglass and wood laminated longbow. I always have used that kind of equipment for my hunting, and then the day before yesterday, I uh, went out with my wife, and she had she had drawn through our state kind of hunting lottery system, had drawn a tag or a permit to shoot an antlerless a cow moose in a in an area um, not too far from where i grew up and so we went up there and after a couple days out um, she was fortunate enough to find a real nice moose a nice young cow moose and uh, we got that on wednesday and got it all processed yesterday i'm gonna still have some meat to grind um, hopefully tonight so you you've got a sheep and a moose so far yep so far (laughs) are there you have more plans and big enough freezers yeah, yeah, I have four freezers, and uh, I grew up in a house with four freezers. Um, you know, my house growing up, we could eat, we could easily with three boys, easily eat a moose and a half in a year like that. Like I mean, that was the only meat. Very little meat came into our household that wasn't either like fish that we caught or animals that we shot. And so, and I've kind of carried on that tradition as, as I've become an adult. And so, and we ate. You know, I shot a goat and a moose and three deer last year. And we, we ate most of it. Um, just my wife and I, and it shared with friends and, and, um, and, you know, we eat it. It's part of at least two meals a day, um, most of the time. And sometimes, sometimes for breakfast too, I'll probably go, probably won't shoot another moose this year. As much as I enjoy moose hunting, I, I, it's hard to justify having two moose. Might have some other hunting adventures in September or just spend a bunch of time out and not actually with that much intention to bring anything home. And then, um, I'll probably, dabble around in October a little bit. And then I have an annual um, black-tailed deer hunt I do in November. I do every year a couple weeks by myself down on Kodiak. So the bow hunting, you said you've kind of 
always rolled that way. And it, that's something that maybe your dad introduced you to and you just decided to stick with that or that's something that you initially kind of took to on your own? Yep. Uh, the former. Um, my dad was an avid hunter throughout his life. My grandpa was actually a pretty avid bow hunter also. And I think even his father, I think, it, you know, I think all way back through the lineage of people in my family have been fairly, fairly interested in hunting. And uh, but my dad like, really had the bug for it. He kind of shaped his whole kind of career and life path around being outdoors and being in the woods a lot. And so at a pretty young age, like that's, that was my introduction to the outdoors. Honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't like uh, adventure sports in the kind of modern sense. It was like going outside to, to hunt and to, to a lesser degree to fish. And, uh, and so I got real interested in that real early. And my dad was always a bow hunter. He, he says it was because of the challenge and the tradition that he continued to hunt with the more primitive style bows, you know, just the, what essentially is like a, a bent stick with a string, you know, with a little bit of it's wood. It's got a little bit of fiberglass reinforcement. Um, I think it's mainly because he was cheap and didn't want to buy the newer stuff, <laughs> <laughs> but it became a source of pride and it does make you, I think it does force you to be a little, it forces you to be a skilled hunter because you have to get really close with that kind of equipment. Like I haven't killed anything over 25 yards away and basically ever in a lot of animals I've killed have been, you know, uh, well under 10 yards, including like mountain goats. Um, and so, which are, which, which are in the wild in the real wild are very different than the ones you might experience see in the national parks that let you get close to them. <laughs> They're very wary, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that's always been my choice of equipment mainly because I enjoy the challenge of it. And, uh, and I think it's in my own weird way, I feel like it's like the, the ultimate fair chase, right? Because the, the range that I'm effective is essentially the same range that like natural predators are effective like that's the range that's the distance that prey animals are like have evolved for millions of years to like be wary of of you <laughs> you know like if you have a rifle and you're 300 yards away from a moose or a caribou you can stand there you can wave your arms you can do jumping jacks they're probably going to stand there and stare at you long enough that you can get your your 338 out and you know shoot them from 300 yards away and they're really not they don't really have any like built-in defense for that that's simplifying a little bit it's not 100 fair but it's pretty true when you're 20 yards away i mean even like if you just slightly misjudge the the thermals and you know which direction the breeze is blowing or you expose yourself at the wrong moment for even a second they're 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 gone i mean you're never either they're long gone and so it it, it requires a lot of intimacy with the animals, a lot of time, you know, spent in pursuit of a particular animal, sometimes like days and days, just trying to figure out the right situation on a particular, um, particular animal. And I, I, it sounds kind of weird. And I, I know a lot of people who don't do this stuff are going to feel like this sounds like a little perverse, but it, it's like, it's, a, it seems like very intimate, honest to me to, to like spend that much time to get that close to a, to a truly wild, like wild animal. It's it's really cool, and the and the bow, the primitive equipment, like basically forces you to do that. You have no choice. Like if you're not within twenty yards, you're not going to bring home meat. So this most recent solo outing of yours, you said you ended up being out for eight days. Yeah, yeah, I went out with um, fourteen days of food, and on the sixth day, for doll sheep to be legal to to harvest, it has to be either over eight years old 
but the more common way is it has to, it's, its horns have to make a full 360 degree curl. So, I um, mean, it takes some skill and experience to judge them accurately because you get in a lot of trouble if you shoot a like a, a, a sub legal or a young ram. And so, and it's it's they judge you pretty harshly when you have to bring it into fishing game, which you're required to do by law if you shoot a sheep to have it sealed to be legally in possession of the horns. You have to have take it in. So they, they it's like a real thing. Sometimes it takes. Sometimes you go a whole season and you never see a legal one because you know for Ram to become full curl, he's going to usually be at least eight years old, and that's an old animal. I mean, a lot of them just die of, of old age. They die from harsh winters. They get they fall in the ice. They get eaten by predators. So you know, and they get hunted in a lot of places. And so it, sometimes you go a whole season and never see a legal one. And I, I've had good fortune. I, I guess maybe because I put a ton of miles on usually, <laughs> I usually find one. But I found one on the sixth day. And at, in the evening, and I spent basically two nights, part of three days and two full nights, kind of in pursuit, camping. At, you know, I always spend my whole time with all my camp on my back. So wherever the sheep kind of end up for the night, um, if they bed down, I bed down. And if they move, I move. And I just wait for the right opportunity that allows me to get that kind of range. Because uh, doll sheep are extremely wary. They have exceptionally good eyesight. I mean, they can... They, I've been picked off by a sheep at a half mile and had them, you know, run pretty vigorously in the opposite direction. They're they're quite wary, and so you have to just be really, really cautious on your approach. Um, or and they, and obviously they they have the option usually to go to places, even if you can still see them, that are like absolutely impossible to approach. You know, just because they're so adept in the, the cliffs. I spent three days and finally kind of things lined up, and I was able to. Uh, climbing from above and I got uh, got 15 yards away and a uh, single arrow and the sheep uh, I'd say he died in about five seconds from the time he was hit he went maybe 20 yards and uh, just fell over as that's just that's how it's supposed to go I, I don't think he, I don't think they feel any pain from the arrow at all and they don't usually react to it in any any kind of violent way well except he took off running Oh, he saw me. Okay. He heard the noise. It was fair enough. Fair point. Fair point. Fair point. Maybe they feel it. There, there's been, they've actually, like, they've queried people who've been shot by arrows, like, which happens in places <laughs> where there's lots of bow hunters in the woods, like in tree stands. And they, most people say they didn't feel anything until they, like, felt around and they were like, oh, there's an arrow sticking out of me. That, that was the most common, unless it hit hard bone, in which case they thought somebody had punched them. This is why I'm constantly checking for like arrows. <laughs> I'm like, well, I wonder if there's, I've got an arrow in my leg and maybe just don't notice. Yeah, I, I, every couple of minutes, I just look to make sure. I think that happens in like Pennsylvania, like <laughs> during opening day of O season when there's like 3,000 people out, you know, in the tree stands together. Okay, I just, you made that claim about like, yeah, the sheep doesn't even feel the arrow. And I'm like, that just reminded me a little bit too much of Descartes actually used to make this argument, animals felt zero pain and were incapable of experiencing emotions. I think the argument mm. went because like they don't have souls. He would torture animals to try to prove oh that like they didn't feel pain. And, oh my god, that's horrible! Yeah, it's not great. It's like Descartes. You should have just stuck to straight logic, because your your animal sensibilities, I think, weren't weren't wow. on point, and you probably hurt some creatures. 
So anyway, I just didn't want this to get too Cartesian here. That really, uh, yeah, that really reframes Descartes in my mind. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to point out the history of philosophy stuff. That's what I'm, you tell us about hunting, hunting with primitive weapons and I'll, I'll make sure you know like how messed up some of the 17th century logicians were. Oh, I think, I mean, so I would agree with you that animals definitely, I mean, obviously animals feel pain, right? Um, the one thing that helps me, you know, as someone who eats meat, um, and I, and to, 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 as a, as a side note, when I was in school in Seattle and I wasn't able to go hunting for several years, I went full veg. Interesting. I went full vegetarian. I didn't eat, I didn't touch red meats. I didn't touch chicken. I didn't touch pork unless I came home for the holidays in which I ate meat with my family. Otherwise I ate fish that I could, that I knew was from like, okay sources. And otherwise I was full veg for, for two full years when I was in Seattle. True story. Full veg. (laughs) Full vegetarian, whatever you call it. (laughs) Well, I, know, I feel like I feel like that's like how Kiwis would say it. I was full. Yeah, veg. they probably they, well they throw in like a curse word or two. At least the Kiwis we know, which kind of. So here's my let me let me let me let me like sorry let me cut you off there. Let me go let me dive down this path for a second because this is an important yeah. point to me and it's something I talk to a lot with um with friend like especially like outdoor passionate friends who have concerns about about hunting and I and I think a lot of concerns about hunting are very valid. I'll put that out there first, but the point about the pain. I, my, my main pushback on that is, you know, I've spent most of my life in Alaska where like, you know, I'm around wild animals a lot and being a hunter, especially I see lots of wild animals, the remains of wild animals. I've seen, you know, I see lots, death is a natural part of the life cycle out there, right? You can't ignore that, that fact. And, you know, if you are a caribou or a moose or a sheep and you are roaming around in the wilds, you know, your, your end of life is basically one of the following. You starve to death, you die of disease, which is pretty uncommon, but, you know, or you are, you know, if you've ever watched a bear or a pack of wolves kill a wild animal, it's not a swift, clean death. I mean, it is like you're eaten alive from the inside out. I mean, wolves disem- often disembowel their prey as they're, you know, as they're killing them. Or you, you know, maybe every other year when I'm in the mountains, I find like, remains of sheep that have died of natural causes you know this year my buddy found a a 10 year old ram set of horns that had died just recently for unclear reasons you know that probably died within the last few months in a place where there were definitely not humans around and so i mean so those are those are your outs essentially as a wild animal and and you know you know if it was me and again this is like probably pretty anthropomorphic but if I had to choose between like a five second death of like, you know, massive hemorrhage or, or being eaten by a wolf or starving to death or even just like, you know, a, a bullet through my chest. I mean, it's a grim thing to think about, but I, I, that's a pretty clear, pretty easy answer. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty easy choice. And so it, I think that sometimes what's forgotten is that it's unfortunately it's like, nature's violent and uh, and harsh you know and like you know animals in a lot of parts of the world and especially the united states you know because unfortunately we've lost a lot of natural predators if animals aren't hunted by people they will starve to death they will overeat the resource and they'll starve to death and that happens in lots of parts of the country so it's 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 horrible to watch animals die i mean i full disclosure i mean it's rare that i shoot something when i don't like 
tear up a little bit or get a little sad because it sucks. It's super sad to watch these awesome animals die. Like it's super, super shitty, but you're part of the food chain. You're, you're, you have made food for your family. You're going to use it. And the animal has as, as, as quote unquote, you know, in human terms. And again, very anthropomorphic. I can't pretend to see the world through the eyes of a doll sheep, but it seems to me like uh, a, a pretty, a, you know, as good a way to go as possible, as good a way to die as possible. And, and I think that's, it's worth mentioning. Yeah. It's worth saying. Yeah. I want to back up for just a second though, and talk a little bit about when you went to school and when you were saying that you basically just went vegetarian, let's just not move too quickly over that. Like, why did you make those decisions? Why was that important to you? Because I think this is what we're just trying to do, right? I mean, we're two very good friends who, yep. well, as is going to be clear, if it isn't already, like, I've got a lot of respect for you. And if I ended up having any significant problems or disagreements with the way that you are operating along these issues that we're talking about, like, well, then I would tell you and we would just kind of talk about that, right? Totally. Yep. But I think one of the things that's been interesting over the years is that, you know, I've been a vegetarian now for 21 years and a vegan mostly in practice for a lot of that time. And yet mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to me that we've had this great friendship and we talk about these issues in a way that I don't know, I don't see the hunter and the vegan constantly sitting down <laughs> to have like productive conversations about, let me understand where you're coming from or why you do what you do. And so that's just what mm -hmm. we're doing. And part of the reason, yep. you know, that I was like, Paul, let's have this conversation. And I appreciated that you have kind of been like, dude, I don't know that I really want to talk about this per se. It's a personal mm -hmm. thing for me. I think there's going to be people out there who will be interested in hearing what these different perspectives are, that people can have different practices and opinions and not have to just come at each other mm -hmm. as if like, well, mm -hmm. you're clearly wrong and a moron because you aren't exactly in the exact same spot that I'm at. So I don't know. That's a, that's a long sort of precursor. But with all that said, I want to back up. Let's talk about why were you like, I pretty much just became a vegetarian when I was in grad school. Talk to us a bit about that. First of all, it was 15 years ago. And so I can't articulate exactly what was going through my mind at that time. But I've always had pretty strong feelings about the same things you do about like big, large scale agriculture, yeah. um, particularly animal agriculture. And I've just never really felt good about supporting that with my with my money. You know, there was probably some health concerns there. I feel like wild game, you know, a, a wild game has probably a tenth of the fat, you know. It's like lean, it's really healthy. But uh, I've just always had really strong ethical concerns, partly the animal welfare part. And I know some people are going to roll their eyes when a hunter says they have concerns about animal welfare. But I think it's a very different thing. Um, the way that some animals are treated in the domestic world. And to me, in, 
for, for a very long time and increasingly over the last few years, climate change has been like this major issue that I can't stop thinking about. I mean, it's hard to be a skier in North America or anywhere in the world right now and not be thinking about climate change constantly, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all talk about it all the time. And I really think that the contributions of large-scale agriculture, I think, has been shown to be demonstrated pretty clearly to be a significant factor. Um, and I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. I'm certainly not an expert on that topic, but that's my understanding. And so um, for those reasons, largely, I just felt like it was I was just going to abstain from that. Yeah. And for me, I mean, again, going back 20 plus years, I pretty much grew up where it was kind of like if there wasn't meat served, like it wasn't a meal. I that was like I loved meat. It tastes good. You know, I was an athlete. I felt good when I ate meat. I just when I was getting into grad school, it just became increasingly apparent to me that there was just simply nothing about factory farms and factory farming and these mass scale farms. There was just nothing about those that I could support anymore. <laughs> I mean, again, these massive, massive, you know, kind of animal incarceration systems where there are important waterways that are getting polluted significantly. I mean, this is just, it is environmentally destructive. It is wildly cruel on all kinds of fronts, both to many animals and as well, many workers at these facilities. And Mm -hmm. I just was like, man, I love meat and all, but like, I can't support this any longer. And it's funny, like in that sense. And so that's a real, real far cry from what you just described when you're going out with a bow. And that's just the part where I can't be like, sorry, man, I don't get that or can't condone that practice. I, I just, I can't get myself to go there. I'm sure that other vegetarians or vegans are just like, sorry, any, any taking or ending of, of the life of any creature is, some, is not a move we're prepared to make. One of the things I have said uh, for years is like, look, in a state of abundant food resources, like I'm been privileged in that there's, there's a grocery store pretty much near anywhere I've ever lived. It's been easy for me to get, you know, vegetables, whatever that I want. But if I'm on a desert island stranded and it's me and a chicken, like I'll eat the chicken, (laughs) right? Good to hear. By the way, for the record, I think Gandhi, Gandhi was like, hey man, if if I'm on a desert island and it's me and the chicken, I'm not eating the chicken. Hmm. And so like Mm -hmm. people address this and look at these issues in different ways, right? But I think that that is always one of the interesting things. I think we first started talking about this years ago. It was like, well, yeah, both of us are kind of against the big factory farm. I think that's a really significant thing that we kind of share on this front, right? No, for sure. I I, I agree with you. I mean, like whenever you and I talk about the food system, we agree on like, 95% 95% of everything and I uh, have very similar takes on it. And I, I feel like, you know, I, I just have on the one side and it partly is, I've, you know, a lot of people aren't fortunate enough to live in a place where there is like the, like abundant, well-managed, sustainable wild game, you know, that's fairly, you know, fairly accessible. 
And I happen to have spent most of my life in that environment. And like I said, when I when I wasn't, I was like, "Oh, this is weird. I uh, I don't feel good about this. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be part of this system." <laughs> and, you know, I I can't even remember the last time I had chicken where I like I probably had it like accidentally at like work and stuff and various meals, but I haven't bought chicken or cooked chicken in twenty years. You know, like in my own kitchen. So given these conversations that I've had over the years, like with my friend and blister reviewer Eric Friesen, you and Eric are the two people that I have the most thoughtful conversations with about hunting, right? And it's clear that, you know, for you guys, and I'm certain that there are many, many others out there, there really is an ethic and kind of an ethos to this. And I think for maybe a lot of folks who are not hunters or maybe they are self-described vegetarians or vegans, whatever, maybe there sometimes happens to be a kind of unfair lumping of all kinds of individuals and people under the kind of umbrella of hunting. And if I can continue in a bit of a generalization, that it's often not a very charitable picture of the like, quote unquote, hunter or the things that, you know, that person cares about or doesn't care about. So I'm not here to ask you to speak for like all hunters, but I think that it is, again, conversations with you and with Eric. It's like, oh, yeah, I think we can sometimes see on social media the dude standing there with his foot on head of some lion or something that it's just like, I'm out here trophy killing shit. I got, frankly, personally, just no time for that. But I think like it's been interesting in the conversations we've had where you're like, well, listen, hunting is a practice that I love and I care about. There is a connection that I feel with the places that I'm going into and with these animals. And it all does actually link up with issues that I also care about, like climate advocacy and conservation mm-hmm. and the rest. And I don't know, where do, where do I go with this? Well, there's a lot there. I mean, I think your, your points are all well taken. And, uh, you know, uh, hunters are just like all people, right? Like no, no two hunters have the same opinions and the same, you know, ethos and the same ways of going about what they do, right? I mean, I, I think you're, you're right to say that a lot of what the kind of mainstream public gets to see from hunters is not the most, for, for a lot of us, like people like you and I, and you know, and a lot of people are listening to this are probably like in the outdoor community and uh, they're, they're not the most flattering takes on, on what hunting looks like. They're not, they're not things that we see that are like inspiring. And I think that's changing. I think that there's, there are people out there and uh, an ongoing, um, you know, a slow, a slow change toward away from hunting as like this, this like weird game where the animals antlers are worth so many points and you want to get another one that has more points or whatever. Some things that I've never subscribed to, I've never had an animal scored or submitted it for records or anything like that. So, so that's one, one aspect of it. I think there's a, there's, there's some change in that direction. I think that especially like in the mountain West, there's an increasing number of people who come from the communities you and I are really well familiar with the kind of like outdoor athletes, I kind of hate that term, but like the people outdoor adventure sport type people like, you know, backcountry skiers, mountain bikers, climbers, kayakers who, um, who are already out there and they love being outdoors and they are like, man, that seems like a great way to get some, get some good high quality protein for my family. And I love being out there. Why not? And so I think, and I think those people are going to bring a similar, um, uh, similar conservation ethos 
to that we bring to you know you know whatever protect our winners and other other things that are trying to to make the places we care about last and and uh, and be there for for future generations that said it would be disingenuous not to give the hunting community credit for being a major major conservation force in our country for more than a century like probably the if there is a single like citizen kind of conservation force that has protected wild places in North America and and elsewhere i i got to say it's probably the hunters i mean you know there i read a book recently called how hunters how sportsmen save the world it's by this really awesome guy who i've had the pleasure to become friends with um over the years after i read his book named um uh don thomas or e donald thomas he's a he's a um uh an excellent writer who lives in montana he actually lived in alaska for a long time and he like me has dedicated a lot of his life to chasing animals with a longbow and uh, he wrote this great book called how sportsmen save the world and it's it's actually a really it's a really easy fun read it's not like this like you know anthology but it makes a really compelling case for the fact going back a century or more on how the hunting community has was was the one of one of the original and loudest voices to conserve wetlands when the buffalo were getting exterminated across the west when the carrier pigeons were or or not what are they called passenger pigeons the pigeons that went extinct there were millions of them anyway you know the, the point is like there's all these like populations of animals that were essentially brought to the brink of extinction or 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 essentially extinct in some cases that passionate hunters and often fishermen stood up and went to their elected representatives sometimes ran for public office and made huge changes and created wildlife refuges and national parks and importantly you know departments of fish and game wildlife conservation programs and that that lives on in lots and lots of ways and you know one of the things that uh my hunting friends will often raise with me when i talk about you know i'm Obviously, I mentioned it at once, and I'll mention it again. Like, I think that the hunting community could do a little better job ad- advocating their legislature, their, rep- their elected individuals for for action on climate change. Right? I think it's a really big deal, and I think that a lot of people who live in the kind of conservative West have have the ear. The hunting community has the ear of their politicians. I think we owe it to the animals we we hunt to 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 make that effort. But as an aside, when I bring that up to my friends who are hunters, I'm like, oh, we really need to work on this important conservation issue. They're like, well how about you and all your REI buddies? What, what money are you guys putting toward conservation? And what they're getting at is uh, there's something called the Pittman-Roberts Act that was, I should know when it was enacted, but it's it, it was like, I mean, I, I think on the order of like 40, 50 years ago, that a portion, a percentage of sales of every piece of hunting equipment, guns, ammo, bows, arrows, camouflage, clothing, a portion of that money is by law required to go to fish and game departments and hunting conservation programs. And it goes, a lot of that money goes into like boots on the ground, you know, protecting wild places, protecting wild game. And, you know, we have 1% for the planet. And I think that's awesome. You know, the hunting community has kind of co-opted 2% for conservation, which I think is kind of funny. But aside from that, the Pittman Roberts Act is a real thing. And, 
not all that money is like perfectly managed and goes into things that I see as like great expenditures, but they have a really valid point. I mean, I, and I personally would be happy if one or 2% of every, you know, pair of skis and, you know, Gore-Tex outerwear I buy goes toward by default. And I think 1% for the planet does that for the companies that take part in that, right? Which is a lot. But I would be happy for that to be a bigger percentage. And I think the hunting community is like, yeah, we're paying our share. <laughs> so it's disingenuous to say that hunters don't care about conservation. I think that most of them would consider themselves passionate conservationists. Their, their understanding of what that means is, is probably different than a lot of our friends and people in our community. But it's not necessarily invalid. It's just different. And I think there's way more in common between the um, a lot a large percentage of the hunting community and a large percentage of the outdoor adventure kind of non for lack of a better word non consumptive outdoor adventurers there's a lot more in common as far as respect and adoration for wild places and true wilderness than there is differences and I, I see that personally because I'm, I'm I have kind of one foot in both worlds and increasingly somehow I've become wrapped up and I've, I've known more and more people kind of in the hunting industry, the hunting world, various hunting organizations. Uh, I, you know, they're good people and they, they truly want the best for the wild places and the wild animals. Just like, just like all of us, you know, skiers and, and mountain bikers and climbers and hikers want, you know, wild places preserved for the most part, you know, Pebble Mine's a great example, right? I don't know if you, have you been following that at all? No. Pebble Mine it's one of the conservation environmentalism issues of our time, right? It's this uh, proposed gold, large scale gold mine in uh, the headwaters of the Bristol Bay salmon fishery. Hmm. And it's like, it's like if you could place like a strategic strike on the perfect place to wipe out the most sustainable, largest, you know, wild salmon fishery on earth, it would be like, that's where you drop the bomb. Wow. <laughs> and they're going to, they want to build like a giant, um, a giant gold mine there of the type that has been very precarious in other uh, contexts and other places. And it's one of the, one of those issues where like everybody, like not everybody, but the hunting and fishing community and the, the outdoor kind of adventure community, the environmental community. I mean, it's like where, uh, you know, Sierra club and the people that make your, your fishing waders are like on the same team, a hundred percent. And the people that make your camouflage jacket, you know, they're all fighting the same fight to try to protect this, this place. And, and then most recently, to everyone's, I think, surprise, uh, Donald Trump Jr. came out and said, this is the wrong mine in the wrong place. I love Bristol Bay. I love hunting and fishing there. Don't do it. Hmm. And that was very much in contrast to the Alaskan Republican Party, who was largely, has, has out, outspokenly supported it. So, I mean, that's a perfect example of where true love of wild places, no matter what your yep. political party is, supersedes, you know, political tribalism. And I hope that someday issue, bigger scale issues like climate change can, can be similar where it supersedes the political tribalism. I think that's pretty interesting, right? And like, I can say, like, I personally don't have any love for the Trump clan. And yet that is interesting and significant to hear that we are breaking ties. And I think anytime we see examples where any of us are willing to kind of break with a perceived party line and just say, listen, no, like this is a significant issue and we need to do better or not, you know, not disrupt something really significant here. I mean, frankly, I would hope that we're, yeah, like you seeing examples of that 
regardless of where one sits on any political spectrum. I don't feel like our current media landscape is going to do anything to encourage that. Right? It's like we kind of have certain narratives. If somebody on not our side does something that actually is like, that's a good thing you did, we're just not going to report on that. Right? And that's a bigger problem that I definitely don't have an answer for tonight. You know, I, I care about a lot of a lot of issues politically, but like I care, there's nothing I care about more than protecting protecting the wilderness, protecting wild places. You know, like uh, you know, and even not to get sappy here, but like as a father now, like it's it really really hits home, right? I mean, like these places, you know, being able to ski snow in the winter and chase you know wild doll sheep in the mountains, and you know, and see salmon swimming in the rivers. That's like an essential part of my like existence, right? I mean, I, my life would not feel whole without those experiences. I really 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 want my my kid to like, to have that as part of his life. And, you know, like there are, you know, salmon dying of heat stroke in Kodiak right now. And, you know, salmon in the Yukon not making it up the river. And the the lamb recruitment rates, meaning like the percentage of, of female doll sheep who have babies has been dropping in the Chugach. And it's largely attributed to, you know, climate change. You, you know, and I could go on and on and on with examples of these things, right? And it's not obviously not all of climate change. There's lots of other things that people are doing to wild places that are that are destructive, and obviously lots of things people are doing to wild places that are really good. You know, it's not it's not all bad, like I've said. But yeah, I, I really hope that this can be an example where you know someone like Donald Trump Jr. can be you know advocating on the same side of you know your most your most ardent wilderness uh, advocates or environmentalists, basically, you know, uh, I mean that it, sh it shows the power of these kinds of, of these places and the care for it. And I, and I really think that like history will judge us all, but you know, it's 30 years from now, the hunting community is going to be like, Oh man, climate change really screwed us over. And uh, you know, you know, the perspective, you know, there's no doubt, right. It's, it's the, the writing's on the wall there, but hopefully like this pebble mine thing, the you know as more people i think have a foot and i hate to say both camps but it does really feel that way sometimes like when you're in the parking lot and one group's getting on their mountain bikes and one group's getting on their four wheelers with their guns it does feel like you're in different tribes right <laughs> like but i feel like there's more that you there's more that we have in common than that we don't and i feel like the love of wild places and wilderness is like i think at least in my narrow view of the world here in alaska is like the common bind, the com the common ground between like vastly different political perspectives. And I know that you are having a lot of conversations along these lines and working on some things. And I don't know how much you're like ready to talk about that just yet. I think those are going to be some things that we certainly will have conversations about down the line. Are you optimistic right now in terms of it sounds like what you're trying to say is like trying to unify a little bit, right? Like you were saying, like the the folks dressed in camo who have their guns sitting there looking at the folks with their mountain bikes. Are you optimistic that we'll see a little bit more of, say, a kinship between these groups? Or are you like, well, no, I'm not right now because we really have a ton of work to do 
But I think if we put the work in and do this the right way, we can get there. Where where are you? I mean, and again, speaking only for myself as just some random guy in Alaska, right? Again, I think that the way we're going to protect important wild places is by, by having a unified voice. And I think it's already I think it's already happening on lots of levels. Um, I think that whatever your political perspective, you realize that if you love the outdoors, whether it's to hunt and fish there or to go skiing, uh, it's important to protect it, right? I mean, people are a real force, right? There's not that many places in the world you can go where you don't feel the impact of, of humanity, and it's usually not an, a, a good thing. And uh, so I think in a lot of ways it's already there. I also think it's already there because, like I said, there's a lot of, there's increasingly a lot, of, a lot of crossover, you know, like I talked to lots and lots of, um, I have a lot of friends here in Girdwood who are lifelong outdoor adventure people, like really capable ones. And, you know, they didn't grow up in a hunting family, they didn't grow up in hunting communities, but, you know, they're like in their 30s and 40s now, and they may or may not have families, and they're like, man, this seems like, you know, they, I have them over for dinner, we have a bunch of deer or moose or sheep or whatever, and they're like, this is good, and I want to get this, and how do I do it? And when those people become involved in that world, I think increasingly it changes the, you know, Inevitably, we join our local associations. We we uh, pay attention to what the board of game, what decisions they're making regarding you know seasons. We pay attention to um, we pay more attention to how various legislation affects animal populations. And so, I think it's happening. I think I think there's. I don't know if it's like that all over the country, but I have I get the impression that you know, places like Bozeman and I bet places like Crested Butte, for sure, like Sun Valley, people I know in all those places, there's a lot of crossover between the people that are out ski touring all winter and the people that are going to be chasing elk next next month. Well, hey, man, it is it is actually after midnight here in Colorado. <laughs> I uh, I just recently recorded a conversation with Elliot Jackson and that one wrapped up that one started at midnight oh yeah so i'm 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 trending not not quite the right way with my like midnight podcast so this maybe is our cue that we should wrap up and i should let you get back to your evening uh there in alaska but dude i appreciate the conversation i do think it's interesting right like i think you and i both were just a little bit just a little bit like are are we sure this is going to be a cool thing for us to talk about and are we gonna tick people off on, I don't know, a whole bunch of different sides of several issues or something. I mean, as always, like I just always appreciate talking to you about these kinds of things. And I hope that the people listening to this will have maybe ha had this conversation trigger a new thought or idea. But I sure like the idea that we just, we certainly can have like real friendships and a lot of respect for people again, who just aren't exactly in the same places. Maybe we are, maybe this is, it's a little kernel of hope maybe that we can have these conversations, start broadening out and, and bringing together different groups, different factions and the rest. You know, like I said, we're going to continue to have conversations about food and food issues in general on this podcast. But in this related way, I mean, kind of we talked about food, but we're also talking about a love of wilderness and these different activities that we love that take place in wild areas. So I don't know. I think I think we did all right here. Yeah, that was really fun. That was, a, that was a great conversation. I, these, you know, like you and I talked about kind of before the podcast, I have always been very reluctant to talk about this part of my life. Well, even with friends, you know, 
and especially like in any type of, of public way. <laughs> uh, I don't full, I can't fully articulate why, but I've always felt like it's a very private, intimate thing that I just kind of sneak off and do for a few months every year. I, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you about it over the years because um, I think it's just really fun to talk to somebody who has, you know, we just have a great conversation about this where we have a lot of things in common. And then obviously this fundamental difference where like, you know, I eat 300 plus pounds of meat a year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're, a, you're essentially a vegan, yeah. but we have like almost the same thoughts overall yeah. on like the food system. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, well, whether anybody else enjoyed it or not, I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's an interesting <laughs> part of our friendship. And, uh, I think there is something to be gleaned there, hopefully for others. And, um, well, anyway, I'm going to let you get back to your evening. As always, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah. More, more to come along these lines. That was great, Jonathan. Thanks so much. That was really fun. Okay, man. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Paul for the conversation. And remember that you can catch more great conversations over on our other podcast channels, including Off the Couch, Bikes and Big Ideas, and Gear 30. And you can find all of those on our Blister website or wherever you download your podcasts. And then, of course, we will be back right here on the Blister Podcast this coming Monday. I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.